And let's give it up for the man of God as well. You did a great job. We love Jesus. Let's get right into the Word. We've got some folks being trained back there, so it's awesome. But, man, what a wonderful time in worship today. Libni and Maliha, thank you so much. And uh, Lawrence, you're, you're doing good, man. You are leaving, um, I should say, you are multiplying and you are leaving us better than when you found us. So I think when you uh, first came, who was leading worship? Was it me? Every now and then? I mean, uh, yes, hymns or something. Like, we just didn't have much going on. So you have definitely left us, by God's grace, uh, you know, at the end of this year, obviously, better than you found us. Okay, so we're going to go into Philippians chapter 1. As they're getting it ready, we're going to be reading today, verses 3 and onward, as our study um, passage. But in review, verses 1 to 2 would be good to go over. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus, at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, from this passage, Lawrence, if someone were to say to you, here we know that the Father alone is God, and that Jesus is is something like a master in the sense of a landlord. That's what it means. Uh, Lord means master there, like a landlord. And it's clear that, that only the Father is God. What would you uh, say back to them? Well, I would go to Romans 10, 9 through 13. 10, 9 through 13. <laughs> Um, I would I would read the verse and I would uh, point them to uh, verse 13 specifically, which says, "For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved." Um, now they might say that that's still just Paul using the term Lord as a master, but Paul is intentionally using that phrase because he's quoting Joel 2:23, and in Joel 2:23 we clearly see that that is Yahweh. Um, that is being talked about because it says, be glad because of what the Lord your God has done. 232, rather. 232. You said 222. I did, sorry, 232. Wonderful, good job. Okay, so right there we see a clear way to use, or rather to understand how Paul is using. I love that little secret dab, like I'm proud of you, man. Glad that we didn't get rebuked for the next half hour on that. Glad that we could just move on today. Don't start no stuff, won't be no stuff, right? That's simple. So I'm glad that you understand that's how Paul uses it. Because remember, Paul doesn't just show up on the scene and start making up doctrine. And if he's coming from the lineage of Gamaliel and the Jewish faith, he has to be uh, in line with the Jewish faith. So what does he mean when he says, God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ? Does he mean both of them are in the same nature or uh, each one of them have a different nature? So you just can't come to the, the text and assume your point and then just say, well, that's, that's what it is. I assume they're two different natures. And that means God means the nature of God and Lord means the master, uh, the nature of something less than God. Okay, we'll prove it. Well, God is God. Well, yeah, but Lord is Lord. So what do you mean, what do you think Paul's meaning by Lord? You have to now teach them. Lord does not mean landlord. Lord does not mean master. Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God, the Lord is one. That's Deuteronomy 6.4. Good job. What were you going to say? 6.4? You got it, baby? Oh, man. Man after my own heart. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. And any time you, you, you'd hit that, if you just say, I got you, you a tear will come down my eye, man. A tear will come down my eye. Um, so we got to explain to that because they can just assume and catch people off guard and say, see, it says God here and Lord here, so obviously Jesus is not God. But then we just flip it right back around on them and go, well, then the Father's not Lord then either, right? So if you're saying that they can't share these titles that explain their, their nature, and you want to say that God can't apply to Jesus Christ, well, then let's say Lord can't apply to Father. And when you understand someone like the Jehovah Witness, their, their argument specifically, they're using the word Jehovah every time they see the word Lord. The problem with that is the word Jehovah is not a New Testament word. All New Testament words are written in Greek, and it's kurios every single time. Even when it's quoting from places in the Old Testament where it would be Yahweh or Jehovah. Yahweh and Jehovah are the same way of uh, uh, the same um, 
mean the same thing coming from the Tetragrammaton, Yohei the four um, consonant name of God in the Old Testament, Y-H-W-H. Yahweh's probably more specific to it. Jehovah comes from a German rendering, but it's the same thing like Christ and Messiah, Christ and Messiah. Christ, Christos is the Greek way, Mashiach, Messiah is the Hebrew way. So Jehovah, Yahweh, talking about the same person, the God of the Old Testament. Now, when they come to the New Testament, they get no help to know when Lord refers to Yahweh or Jehovah. They get no help because it's always curious, always Always, 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 even when they're quoting the Old Testament, like Paul did in uh, Romans chapter 10, 9 through 13, where it says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's coming from Joel, and in Joel 32, that's Yahweh, the Hebrew word, but in uh, Romans, it's kurios. And just like you can be called a kurios in the Greek culture, you, uh, you can be called or excuse me, just as uh, we can say that there are many curioses in the Greek culture, they could say, well, that means Jesus is just a, a, a normal kind of curios. But there's also that word curios that's used for God. So which one is it? Is it the curios, like landlord, here's a master of the land, or is it Lord as in Yahweh? So you just can't assume you know what this means. They can't just come in here and say, well, I'm going to insert a master here just like a master. But when I see that word, as they do in a Jehovah Witness Bible, we'll see that same word kurios when they want to, and then they'll translate it Jehovah, where it's not there in the original Greek. It's only kurios. Do you get my point? So they're taking the liberty to tell you as the reader whatever it's supposed to be. Here it's supposed to be Jehovah. There it's supposed to be, um, you know, master. Let me give you an example. Go to uh, go online, please, to uh, the Watchtower Bible Track, or just Google this uh, New World Translation, and I'll give you the perfect example. Go to the New World Translation, and if you understand how to rebuke the Jehovah Witnesses, you'll be able to know how to rebut any religion, even like the black Hebrew Israelites, who do not believe Jesus is Yahweh. So they'll use the same arguments. They all have that in common. So now go to Romans. Uh, so scroll, scroll down there. Go to Romans chapter uh, 10, verse 13, and you'll see my point. Now go to verse 13, uh, chapter 10, verse 13. Yep. Yeah, go all the way down. Now notice this right here. Okay. Verse 13, for whoever calls on the name of Jehovah will be saved. Oh, so, so they, they changed the word from Lord to Jehovah, even though it is the Greek word kurios. It's the same one. Now go up to Romans 10.9 and get them caught in their own trick here. Go up to Romans 10.9. For if you publicly declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Oh, now you're playing a game with us, aren't you? Both of them are the same exact Greek word, kurios. But why is it when they're quoting Joel, they call it by the Old Testament Hebrew name, Jehovah or Yahweh? But they don't do it here because they know in Joel it has to be Yahweh. It has to be. They know that if they're going to be consistent, whenever Paul quotes the Old Testament, we know that the Lord, when God is speaking, that's Yahweh. But hold on. It says in verse 9 that if you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord, you shall be saved. And then it says that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Well, now they have a contradiction. Who am I calling on to be saved? Do I just say Jehovah is Jehovah to be saved? Declare Jehovah is Lord to be saved. Declare Jehovah is Jehovah. No. Declare Jesus is Jehovah. And so now that's where you have to show them. Even your own translation uh, tells the truth of this passage. We're declaring Jesus is Lord because Je uh, Jehovah said in Joel that when he is called upon, he'll save you. But who is the he that we're calling upon? Because there's three persons in Jehovah, the Father, Son, and the Spirit. Who are we calling upon? Oh, we're calling upon Jesus. Now, go to um, Ephesians, one Lord, and we'll do it in the Watchtower translation as well. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Want to get that out here. Pull that out. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. And you'll see them tell on themselves again. Uh, Ephesians 4, 5. Watch this. You'll see how they contradict once again. Now notice it. Wow. 
There's one body. There's one spirit, just as you were called to one hope and one calling. One Lord. How come you're not saying there's one Jehovah? Now you just keep it as kurios. Remember, it's always kurios in the Greek. So why is it you sprinkle in Jehovah whenever it benefits you? So then you ask them, how many lords are there? How many, how many lords are there? So if, there, if you're not saying that's referring to Jehovah, then that means there's multiple lords in the Christian faith. No, but there's one Lord. Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one. What should it be translated there if they want to be true to the, the writings of Paul? They should translate there's one Jehovah and one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. And see, they try to say, oh, no, we couldn't say there's one Jehovah and then one God because it almost looks like we're contradicting ourselves. And that's then what Mormons do. Mormons then say that the God of the Old Testament, when he is referred to as Elohim, the Hebrew word Elohim, that is the Father, and Yahweh is Jesus. Now, that's confusing to us, but you can see where they get that idea from the New Testament going to the back. So they try to now use those words to distinguish the Father <clears throat> from the Son. Libni, I have some water back there in the sound booth. Would you grab it for me, please, before I choke on my own saliva again? You see, they, the Mormons, fail at understanding that both of these can be applied to Jesus. Because now, let's go back to the book where we're at in their version. Go to Philippians chapter 2, verses 11 and onwards. Thank you so much. Appreciate that. And by the way, when you guys are singing, if you ever need water, you can just get some of these Thank you. Okay, look at Philippians chapter 2. I'll leave my water here. Is that okay, guys? Thank you. Philippians chapter 2. Go on down just a little bit. Now watch this. It says in verse 5, keep this mental attitude in you that was also in Christ Jesus, although he was existing in God's form. That's not what it says in the actual translation. It says in the actual Greek that he is in nature God, not form, because we can be in the form of God as children, the children of God formed in the image of God, right? But it actually says in God's nature. I mean, it's, uh, yeah, it says in God's nature, but they change it to form. And then now watch this, that every tongue should openly acknowledge that Jesus Christ is what? Lord to the glory of God the Father. Oh, but where is this pointing back to that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bend in heaven, on the, uh, in those in heaven, and those on earth and those under the ground? That's referring, let's see if they have it here. Go back to P, hit P there. No, see, they put it back there to Romans 10, 9, but that's actually referring back to the Old Testament where every knee bows before Jesus, uh, bows before Yahweh. Every knee, I believe it's still in Joel, every knee will bow. Go to, uh, which one? Did, yes, it is Isaiah. Thank you. Isaiah what? Yes, check your cross-reference. Isaiah 45 what? It's going to be probably towards the beginning, I believe. Or let's see, uh, keep going down. It's actually in the same place where it says that we are the witnesses of Jehovah. There's no one else like Jehovah. Keep going. It says there's nobody besides him. All talking about Jehovah here in their translation, right? Keep going. Maybe it's a little bit further down. I stretch the heavens. Which one? Yep, keep going. Now watch. Yep. No, not 18. 23, keep going. Thank you. To me, every knee will bend, every tongue will swear loyalty. Thank you. That was good, Malia. That was awesome, right on point. Wow. Their own verses contradict their translations. The verse right there contradicts their translation. We are declaring in Philippians that Jesus is Yahweh to the glory of God the Father. We are bending our knees before Yahweh, confessing him, as Joel says, to be our Lord, calling on him. Amen? Going back to the notes now. When we look to the scriptures, we can see that is Paul's reference point. There's not two gods. There's not two Yahwehs. There are three persons sharing the names and titles of God and Yahweh. 
as we just learned in Philippians chapter 2, and let's go to Philippians 2 in the Bible, not on the, yeah, right there. Go to Philippians chapter 2, and we'll go to the NET version, which will give us the most precise, I think, to the, to the Greek. It's uh, one more over. Yes, hit that one right there. And now go down a little bit. Uh, once it clicks on, sometimes it runs a little slow. You'll see that it's in the nature God. And I'll teach you how to, to do that uh, here in a second, how to go to the, the Greek of this. Yeah, there it is. It's already ready for us. Okay, keep going down to Philippians. Yeah, further down. Okay, stop here, each one of you. Yeah, keep going. Should have just, if that was in Christ Jesus. Watch this. Oh, we passed it. Sorry. I think it was at verse 4 or 5. There we go. Go, go, go. Now watch. Who though existed... In the form of God, now I did correct their version for saying that because it should, it should say more adequately nature, but this is morphe. Hit this word right here. So I think, in, I think uh, NET does it wrong. I'll click on it so we, you know, it's going to open up another window now. I'm surprised it didn't show up right down there. Yeah, in the, it, we could say form, it, it, it's, it does fit, don't get me wrong, but it's more adequately said in nature. Go back to the King James. I'm going to, I'm going to prefer the King James over here. King James is, uh, is back this way. You're for, yeah, it moved you further uh, right. Go all the way back that way. Go to where the crown is at. Yeah, right there. So I got to be careful. When I corrected them on form, on the word form, it's because I'm used to uh, the King James, and morphe can mean form. But more precisely, it refers to nature. Uh, let's go, go ba uh, back up. There we go. Yeah, keep going here. We're in three for some reason. Yeah, keep going all the way up, back up to chapter two. Where is it? Where is it? Uh, who? Oh, form is in this one. Man, so NIV is the only one that gets it right here. Go to NIV. Go up. Uh, there it is, very nature. Yeah, hit on A right there. I'm curious to what they have for that reason there. Or in the form of, yeah, it goes either way. Let's go to, um, go to the ESV. I'm curious to what the ESV has. It's going to be a little bit over here. I know it's hard to see. A little bit, one more over. Yep, go right there. Another one over, yep, right there. Go right there. Let's see what they have. Click on it. Has form. Wow, so I'm so used to the NIV. <whistles> Got to be careful. You're going to make the argument from form. Let me just back up and say that. Because it can mean nature, but it can mean form. And you can get tied up in that. I still believe nature is correct as the translation for Morphe. But they can wiggle their way out of the form of God. So what do I think is better than, than staying on the word form, just reading on. Did not consider or did not count equality with God something to be grasped or held on to. And that means that he had it and did not need to hold on to it in his divine privileges, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. That would not mean anything unless form meant nature of God. Does everybody get how I just continued the argument but not basing it only on the word morphe there? No? Okay, let me go through it again. If they say form can mean like image, even though it doesn't mean image there, it does mean nature, they may want to argue with that and say the sons of God can refer to angels as well. Did you know that? It says in the book of Job that the sons of God presented themselves to the Father. Does everybody know that? Go to Job chapter 1. Just don't go to an... Uh, yeah, open up a new NIV version. Go to Job chapter 1. And so I'm going to show you how to work your way through that so that you can have an adequate understanding of the Trinity, even in Philippians. Because when we say in the form of God, in the nature of God, they may try to hold you up there and say it's not really calling him God. It's just saying that he's, uh, he's in the image of, of God. So scroll down a little bit. I don't know exactly where it's at, but it's going to be when the angels appear. Um, yeah. No, you're in Joel. Go to Job. Did I say Joel? Okay, Job. Thank you. Job. Anybody here got a job? Okay. Go up a little bit more. To, yeah, 
It says, um, verse 6, one day the angels, and now see this translation is messing with us. Go to, uh, go to the King James for one day the angels. See, now you're learning about translations, how different ones do it. Okay, where, where were we at? Uh, uh, go now all the way to the left. Go all the way to the left. Man, I, sometimes I wonder if I should just bring my laptop. I feel bad for you guys. All the way to the left to the A, and that's going to change everybody now. So go to uh, Job chapter 1, verse 6. Job 1, 6. And then you're going to go click on the King James. There you go. Scroll down a little bit. Come, man. The Lord said to Satan, no, go up. Where am I missing? This was it not six. Which verse is it? It is six. There we go, sons of God. Okay, now there was a day when the sons of God, and let's see which is more accurate. Uh, angels is Malak. Let's hit it on the right. Right, right click this. Right click this. Right click it. You're going to see right here that it's, it's not Malak. It's going to be the words for, see, sons. You see it? Ben. Ben. Does everybody understand uh, where ben, what Ben means? When it says uh, Simon, uh, uh, son of Jonah, Simon, Ben Jonah, that's what it means, okay? You guys ever see that in the, in the scriptures? Um, when you see the word um, Ben in there, in the scriptures, that means son of, okay? So now go back, and then you're going to see uh, God, you're going to see Elohim there. Go over God and right click. You're going to see, uh, yep, Elohim. But you see how the translation there put the angels. That's, that's, that's them reading into it. Even some of our own guys, they, they, they do things they shouldn't. It is literally sons of God. Now go back uh, to Philippians so we can see it here in the NIV. Philippians chapter 2. You say, look, I can show you that Jesus is called God as well. Because remember, if they're saying that only God is the Father, then why is Jesus called God in Philippians chapter 2? Does everybody understand the argument that I'm making? Okay, I need some feedback from you guys now. Do you understand the argument that I'm making? Yes or no? If you don't, say no. Okay. God the Father, Philippians chapter 1, Lord Jesus. We are now showing them that Jesus is called God as well. Do you guys understand that? Remember when I showed you in their version, it said the form of God. And I said, I don't like that. It's the nature of God. Remember? Remember? But then I went to the other English translations, and it said form of God as well. So then I realized that they may get me tied up in a, a word fight, a word battle, between whether or not it should be nature or whether or not it should be form. But how do I know it should be nature? How do I know this is talking not about Jesus looking like God as the sons of God did, the angels of Job? They're called sons of God. If you're a son of your father, don't you look like your father? If you're a son of your father, don't you have a form of your father? Don't you have a form similar to him? So they're going to say that's all Jesus is. Jesus is just an angel, the angel Michael that God has chosen to exalt and to do all these other things with. Does everybody get that? So I'm showing you, I'm showing you now that that's not what it means. It's not according to Job what Paul is talking about. He's not saying Jesus is like the angels, the sons of God. I can purposely, I mean, I can show you that exact point in Hebrews chapter 1 where it says, to which of the angels did he ever say? Today I've begotten you, become my son, etc. But I'm showing you here in Philippians how you can know that's not what it means. But if they're quick with you, they'll say, this, was it, this is what it means. In the form, in the form of God, go to Job. These are the sons of God. That's what Jesus is. He's a son of God. He's in the form of God. That's where they'll go with you. You get the point. You're being taught how to understand these scriptures, not only just how to combat it, but for your own self. So now I'm showing you that if you read on past the argument over the word nature or form, you read on where it says, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. This could not refer to the angels. Because do angels have a choice on whether or not they're going to be equal with God? No. no. But he made the choice to not be equal with God. Does everybody get that? It was his choice. Why is that important? In the context, it says that we need to have the same mind in us. 
Paul is teaching doctrine from the kenosis or the self-emptying of Christ. He's saying Jesus, who was in the nature God, he did not hold on to his privileges as God, but rather made himself nothing. That's the way you're supposed to be. Don't hold on to your own privileges as a millionaire or as a business person or as a, a leader in the army, like a centurion. Don't hold on to your privileges. Lay them aside so you can serve others. Others, Does everybody get the example now? It would make no sense to say an angel set aside the privileges of God to be a servant to us. Because somebody could say, well, angels never had the privilege of God. There's no humility in an angel not acting like God or doing what God can only do. Because no angel can do what God can only do. Why did I go through all of that? To give the defense that it refers to nature. When it's talking about he's in the morphe of God, he's in the nature of God. How do I know it's not just a form? Like Adam and Eve were made in the form, the image of God. Uh, angels are in the image of God. They're called sons of God. How do I know it's not just that? Because the very next part of the verse teaches me that what he was, he did not use to his own advantage. And what was he equal to? God. That's who he's equal to. He did not use his equality with God to his own advantage. He did not come here as a superman or as a Hercules. He empties himself, not of his nature. He's still in nature God, taking on a new nature, just like I can be a nature man putting on my clothes and still remain a man. The only difference with that example in Christ is my clothes is not a separate nature. But if you wanted to go to another example, I could dress up like a dog for Halloween, put on a dog suit. Once again, doesn't mean I'm a dog, and it's still not the exact representation because I'm not taking the nature of a dog. The closest thing that we could probably come to is me voicing over a cartoon or an avatar in a video game of another nature while I'm still refer, uh, retaining my nature. I'm Joe, the human, role-playing in the wizard movie as a, as a wizard or a troll or whatever different nature is out there. Do you get my point? Christ takes on human nature and never stops being God. That's why we say the terms like this to help us understand he's 100% God and 100% man, not 50 God and 50 man. He's 100-100. So he's simply adding two. So if somebody goes, well, if Jesus is Yahweh and he comes in the flesh, the Bible says he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Something changed about him. God never changes, the Bible says. Well, that's not what we mean. When Jesus takes on human nature, did the Son of God and his divine nature change? No, he has always remained the same and will continue to remain the same. That's the same argument when they say, well, how can God die? Jesus died on the cross. When the flesh of Jesus died, did his spirit, did his nature die? And the way you can help people see that is when your body dies, does your spirit die? No, your spirit lives on and is either in heaven or hell. Now, your spirit nature is of human nature, and your earthly body is of human nature. So your spiritual nature represents your physical nature. Jesus has a different nature in his spirit that he then coincides to live and to take on flesh. Does everybody get that? But I am also two different kinds of things. I am also a spiritual being and a physical being. But my spiritual being has not preexisted on a different level than a human being. I have not preexisted, and I have not a different nature in my spirit than what I am representing in my human nature. Now, the good uh, thing about that is, is that we don't have to worry about being reincarnated as dogs and cats and all these other things, okay? And that's what the Hindus teach. We don't believe in that nonsense. We believe that we are a human creature that is dwelling in the body, and we're still very human even when we're not uh, in the body. We're still human. And the way you can help people see this is, is an angel still an angelic creature without having a body? Yes. But can they appear with a body? Can they do things with their body, like destroy you know, cities and, and cut down people and in war? Yeah, they can do all kinds of things. But they're not a human in their nature. 
Now the next question would be, do animals have a spiritual nature that lives on? And that will be for another day, another class. Do all dogs go to heaven? We'll talk about that later, where their life force comes from. Do they have a spirit? We could make the argument that land-dwelling animals have spirits. But what kind of spirit do they have? What nature is it in? And how does it exist in the afterlife? That is another discussion. But if you start in Genesis chapter 1, the same thing that is in us, nefesh, is in them. The only difference is our nefesh comes directly from God, and we're then declared to be different by being told we're in the image of God. And so our nefesh is of human, uh, uh, humankind, and it's in the image of God, and it's meant to live on as a human. But the nefesh, actually, in that, that, that context of chapter 1, is in the animals of the land as well, in birds and, uh, you know, dogs and cats and all kinds of things. And so that's why we, uh, we often have relationships with these kinds of animals. And it's amazing what you can do with these kinds of animals. And so the question is, what happens to them when they die? What happens to their spirit? What does God purpose for that? And another uh, great question is, did, the, did the, 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 the donkey of Balaam talk because all animals can talk if he empowers them? Or did God have an angel speak through them? The same thing with Satan and the serpent. Satan and the serpent gets a little bit more, uh, more depth to it. Is it Satan appearing as a serpent or an actual serpent being possessed? Or is serpent simply referring to the seraphim, a certain kind of angelic creature that is serpentine in qualities? Because remember, serpentine does not always mean evil. Even the Bible says to be as shrewd as serpents, right? Doesn't it say that? As, as wise as, as shrewd as serpents, as, as harmless as doves, Right? Okay, and so we have to be careful with that. And seraphim actually in the Hebrew has references towards serpentine qualities. So there's a lot going on there in Genesis, but rather going to the spirit that we were talking about, some people can even make the argument that, that, it, that it is like Mr. Ed, an old show where the, the horse talks, that Balaam is talking, that it's Balaam talking. It's not an angel in Balaam. It is not God astral projecting through the animal. It, it is, you know, like puppeteering the animal. It is an animal with a mind that is now talking, and then that part of that animal, that, that nefesh, that part of its soul, is then back uh, and regulated to not being able to do that. So that's an interesting thought. What can animals do and not do? And uh, once again, this doesn't make us foolish because uh, if, they're, if they're atheists, they believe that we're still animals that talk. So you believe, you know, if an atheist says that to you, you believe that the animals talked, you believe I'm an animal that talks. I mean, what's the difference, you know? It's just, well, it just evolved along a little bit longer, and now I talk. Well, well, in our Bible, they talk then, too. There's really no difference. Do they have vocal cords? Do they have a brain? they have nervous systems? I'm sure a little bit of tweaking here and there, we could make them talk even now if we put some electrodes in them and uh, hooked up a computer to them and did a little bit of, like Simon says, and we probed that, made that thing start talking. I mean, a parakeet can talk, right? A parrot, rather. A parrot talks. So it's, it's not hard for us to believe, and it doesn't put us into nonsense. But it is supernatural. But remember, everything that's supernatural has also a natural component to it. Everything that's supernatural has a natural component because otherwise the world would be nonsense. The whole world would be a, a world of uh, kind of the dream stages of those movies where everything's spinning, you know, and people are trying to figure out what's going on in that dream stage. The whole world would be like that. So the very fact that we're naturally in the world and able to function is because of supernatural things. Well, then we ought to also believe that while we're functioning in this world, that supernatural things would intervene. But uh, when you do science and you do uh, mathematics and these kinds of things, they actually put in a philosophical saying uh, so that we can know that this is not going to change based on supernatural events, and that is all things being equal. Put that in your Google and get the Latin for that. All things being equal is the philosophical term that the scientists use who, who were God-fearing because they wanted to be sure that we're not saying that this is the way it's always going to be because we have no understanding of that. Uh, yes, do you want to try to say Because I think you would pronounce it better than me. Cetris paribus? There you go. Try it one more time. Nice and loud. Cetris paribus. Cetris paribus. There we go. All things being equal. So, so understand this. We have to assume that whether we believe in God or not. 
Because if you don't believe in God, what is sustaining the next moment? How do you know water will boil at that temperature? And we all won't go into a heat death and the, the, uh, the elements fold in for an oscillating universe that folds in, blows up, folds in, blows up. How do you know we're going to be here the next second? You have no guarantee. And this is called um, the, the great um, built-in, oh, man, what did uh, David Hume call it? It's, it's the, uh, the Hume's problem with induction. There we go. It is the error of induction. Induction is assuming that all things will be equal for the next moment I do the test. And, and David Hume was a famous atheist, but he shot himself in the foot while trying to disprove God, and he even admitted it that when he says, I only believe in science, I don't believe in God, he had to assume that science would be regular and would continue in the future, and he would have the principles of regularity waiting there for him. But science cannot predict what's in the future based on what's happened in the past. It's a logical fallacy to say because the past has been like this, where I'm a man in a man's body living in Chicago, that now the next second I'll be a man in a man's body. There's nothing in science that can ground that. You could say, well, my experience the last 40 years has been like that, but your experience could be deceptive. You could be in a brain in a vat right now. You don't know where you are or what you're doing. You have no bottom. You have no floor. You have no guarantee you were even existing a few seconds ago uh, um, and hours ago. You could have been created now with the memories in the past and the belly of you overeating the last few years. Do you understand? These are philosophical things that even the atheists understand. It's called the problem of induction. It's where you, you have to assume, <coughs> excuse me, you have to assume the regularity of science to do science, and there's the circular argument. Well, how do you do science based on regularity? Well, how do you prove regularity on science? Well, how do you do science based on the assumption of regularity? Do you, does everybody get that? You cannot do science without the assumption of regularity. But how do you prove regularity? By doing your experimentation. So that's where you get people caught up very quickly who say that, <coughs> excuse me, they can do anything without God. Philosophically, you can't. In, in, the, in the natural world, you cannot. Naturally, <coughs> create your own universe, matter, space, and time. You can't. Someone created that. Well, the Big Bang, who banged it, right? We talk about that. But then philosophically, they can't do anything. Because philosophically, what's their first principle? Science. Where did science come from? The knower. Where did the knower come from? They have no explanation. Because then they go back to the thing they're proving with science. And that's why Descartes said the last line of, of his defense in a naturalistic society, he did not appeal to God, which is my disappointment in Descartes. He should have appealed to God. That's why I do not hold to um, his, his uh, philosophical system. As he has defined it, I hold to a lot of his philosophies, but not to his entire system. And his system fails because where did he start? I think, therefore, I am. But once again, <clears throat> you don't know that you're thinking. Someone can be thinking for you, through you. So you have to assume God. God is, therefore, I am. God said, I am, therefore, you are. Does everybody get that? He said, I'm the great I am. That's not a joke. You'll study that the rest of your life and still be deep on that. Jesus said to them, I am that I am. That is the being. That is the, the self-existing being, and that is the foundation for all other being, the I am. If you do not have an I am, a self-existing being, you do not have you. You do not have anything. So anyone who wants to skip over that foundation will not get anywhere philosophically. And then naturally doing their science, they have to acknowledge God to do their science. And how do they acknowledge God? All things being equal. All things remaining the same. And then they go and do their science. How do we know that there's all things remaining the same for this season? Because God has put us in this world of, of, of order. He said that there's seed time and harvest. There's winter and there's summer. There's night and there's day. He has made the world orderly. We trust in him. He's the great I am. Amen. Going back to Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. This is so good that you guys are learning this. Paul is with his spiritual son, Timothy. Paul is in jail. Timothy is there visiting him. He's in Roman jail because he got arrested by the Jews and he appealed to Caesar. They are servants of Christ Jesus, just as Christ was a servant of the Father. They are servants of Christ Jesus to the people. Remember, just because Jesus is in the nature of God, that doesn't mean he didn't serve God. He served God, though he's in the same nature. And that's what we're learning here. Humans are all in the same nature, but they serve each other. So if someone says, well, Jesus prayed, you know, well, I communicate with my wife. What does that mean? 
prayer is a form of communication. Wouldn't Jesus pray and talk to his Father? They're of the same nature. That doesn't mean one's of a greater nature than another. The Bible says that the, uh, the Son worshiped the Father. Well, that's great. The Father worships the Son or gives him honor or calls honor to him. They say, well, the Son's always obeying the Father. That's right. On earth he does. But at a time in the Old Testament, the Father obeys the Son, rains down fire and brimstone. In Genesis 19, the Lord from the earth rained down fire and brimstone from the Lord in heaven. And so that was initiated by Jesus. And so everything they try to twist around, we can show with Jesus, uh, show with the Father doing for Jesus as well. So humans serving other humans, that's the heart of servanthood. It's not a servanthood for you to serve me. Uh, That's not so great because I'm greater than you in position. Your servanthood is shown the most when you serve those of lesser position or of equal position. Does everybody get that? And so you show yourself to be a servant when you let go of your title and you serve those beneath you. That's a heart of a servant, amen? To all God's holy people, to the saints in Christ Jesus. Of course, I wish that was there. Two words instead of uh, one word instead of, of two, saints. That's what it's talking to there. In Christ, we are positionally in Christ. At Philippi, we've talked about the city. Together with the overseers and deacons, every church is established upon elders and deacons. You can have the fivefold ministry gifts flowing through them, but that's where we uh, disagree with some of our professors, right, friends, is they try to make those offices, but it never talks that way in the New Testament. It is always these positions. These positions are what lead the church, and the gifts of the leaders is what God uses to bless the church. God is using me as a teacher right now, but does that mean I'm not a pastor? Does that mean I'm not an apostle planting a church in Dallas right now? No, I can be all of those gifts, all at the same time, some at one, you know, just one at one time. But what I never move away from is being an elder. They have to then answer that question. Why are there elders and deacons in charge? Show me where the fivefold ministry is in charge. Show me where it tells me the qualifications of the elders and deacons, as it does in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and, and in Titus as well. So the church is led by elders and deacons. That is what you will forever be as a leader in Christ. Amen? Grace and peace, the standard greeting of of Paul, to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Both sharing in the same nature, but they're different persons. Amen? Let's continue on. Praise God, we have now made it to verse 3. I thank my God every time I remember you. Now remember, how are we going to pray? To the Father in Jesus' name. I thank my God. From this point on, when we normally hear God, we're going to think of the Father. That's how he gave us. Let's go to the back. Let's go to the beginning, please. Verse 2. That is the the code to decipher what he's talking about now from this point on. When he's going to refer to God from this point on, most of these references are going to refer to the Father. When he refers to Lord, he's going to be referring to Jesus. But at times, will he call Jesus um, God? Yes. At times in other letters, will he call the Father Lord? Yes. But now we know how he's going to use it. I thank my God every time I remember you. He's grateful for them. He's praying. He's thinking about them. Whenever he thinks about them, he doesn't go, oh, man, I can't believe I got to take care of these people and pastor and overshare, you know, over, uh, oversee them, these people. No, he's like, every time I think of TJ, oh, a smile comes to my face. Every time I think of the sisters in the church, the brothers, oh, I just am so thankful for the church of Philippi. And now, for the first time, we're able to do that here. When I think of the church of Dallas, that's going to bring me just a smile on my face. When I think of Dallas, I love you, brothers. If I was writing a letter to him, when I think of you, brothers, this is what I think about you. Think of you, Jared. We, we sent you out there. When I think of you, Riascos, this is what I think of you. Amen? You guys saying the same thing. When I think of you, Yolis, this is what I think of you. Verse 4. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. He knows that God will complete what he has started in them. He is thankful for that. He is grieved in other letters. He's grieved in Galatians. He's grieved in Corinthians. He is not grieved with the Philippians. As a matter of fact, here we only see a little bit of trouble, and that's one of his best churches. Sometimes people say to me, how can you think that God is on the earth doing all these good things, supposedly, when there's so much division on the church? When Jesus was on the earth, there was division, and he prophesied it, mother against daughter, etc. And when Paul, the greatest apostle, was with us, there was divisions in his own churches. So this is not to be looked at as a sign that we're doing something wrong. It's part of being in the ministry. It's dealing with fallen people. It's dealing with people who choose not to always listen and obey God. But he says he's confident that he 
who began a good work in them will carry it out to completion, to the day of Christ Jesus. So who began that work? We know it's the Father because Christ Jesus is, is, is a different person brought up in that sentence. And he started off there talking about God the Father. Here sometimes people want to bring up once saved, always saved. And they'll say, well, if we're not once saved, always saved, how could I pray that for you? Did I know God is going to finish it? Because it wouldn't make any sense if there's a potential you can fall away. I can only pray that for you if I know you'll never fall away, that whoever God saves will always be saved. Do you understand their argument there? This argument does not mean people cannot walk away from Christ and be completed. Because remember, Christ is going to complete that which he starts, but I can walk away from what he starts. For example, let's say today I'm going to build a house. And I say, come with me and help build this house because I will complete what I've started. At some point, you walk away from the house. How many know I still complete the house? Okay? Now, what is the good work that Christ will complete in them? Salvation. And we'll learn later in Philippians that that is the redemption of the body. What is not complete is the salvation of the body. The salvation of the spirit and the soul has already been completed. That's why we believe in entire sanctification here. And we'll explain that further from one of the passages people try to use in Philippians against us when it says, Paul talking about his experiences, he says, have I already been made perfect? No, I'm doing, I'm forgetting the past, moving towards the future. And they try to use that against us. But in a few verses later, it says, to those who are perfect in Christ, have such a mind in you. So in one place, he says he's not perfect. And he uses the same exact word in the next few verses to say to all those who are perfect. What is he talking about? Two kinds of perfection. What Paul was simply saying is, I have not received the resurrection from the dead. That's exactly what he's talking about there in Philippians. He says, I have not yet attained the resurrection of the dead. He tells you what he's talking about. But to as many who are perfect have this mind in you. What was he saying he was perfect in? He's perfect from verses 1 and onward. The saints, the holy ones, they are perfected in their spiritual nature. Salvation is complete. What is waiting to be completed is the redemption of the body. Because when I got saved, my body still looked the same, didn't it? But my spirit was born again, and my nature was changed. Whoever's in Christ Jesus is a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, everything has become new. Well, my body looked the same. What is the everything it's talking about? Everything that makes you as a nature. On the, the spiritual side of things, what are we waiting to see come true as a new nature? The body on the outside of things. Amen? And so read it again. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion in Christ Jesus. We have no doubt that Christ will, uh, we know Christ will never fail at completing any good work in any person. But they have to be in Christ Jesus for it to be completed. So if someone says to me, well, pastor, if I'm not once saved, always saved, should I then fear that I have ever been saved or will be saved? No, those who are in Christ should have total confidence that as long as I am in Christ, he will complete everything he has started in me. So there isn't a doubt about whether or not I'll make it when I'm in Christ. It doesn't matter how many times I sin or mess up. Christ will forgive me and restore me. But if I come out of Christ through my sin, then there's no hope for me. So yes, there is forgiveness of sin in Christ. At this point in Christ, it isn't the sin that will bring us out because it wasn't the good works that brought us in. Sometimes they say, well, what sin brings you out? And it's not that I just keep sinning that brings me out in that one sense because doing good works did not bring me in. I come out of Christ the same way I came into Christ, but in the opposite way. I came into Christ by faith. I come out by unbelief. That is the doorway. It's not in by good works, out by good works. That's why David could still remain saved after committing adultery. Because the sin itself wasn't what was going to damn him. He was still covered by the blood. But he had to have true repentance. Now what is the relationship as we study in Hebrew, and I have the warnings in one of my, my papers you can read. What, what is the danger with sin as Hebrew talks about is that sin hardens the heart and leads us to unbelief. So through the act of sinning, we then commit unbelief towards Christ, lack of trust, and then we walk away from Christ, and that is a dangerous place to be. So we should always keep our hearts pure before Christ through repentance, like Psalm 51 in David's example there. 
Before you and you alone, O Lord, have I sinned. Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Is he talking silly talk there? No, I can never take my spirit from you. No, it's real talk. Jesus, forgive me now because I sense you're about ready to leave me. Why did he know that was a reality? Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Because he saw the Holy Spirit taken from Saul. The Holy Spirit lifted off of Saul, and then here came a spirit upon Saul. And David had to play his instruments to soothe him. Could you imagine me being demon-possessed and you worshiping in my bedroom to put me to sleep at night? And every now and then when I get mad, I just throw something at you. That was David's life. Amen. And David still didn't disrespect Saul. Think about that. He honored him. That's where you get, you know, the idea of touch not my anointed. You don't touch what God has anointed. You can judge it. You can consider it sin. And you can walk away from relationships when God tells you to. But we need to be careful in how we treat those God has anointed and God is dealing with. Amen. Verse 7, it is right for me to feel this way about you, since I have you in my heart, and whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. Notice that he is saying it's good for me to feel this way, that I'm confident because I have good reason to. He's heard reports that they're living for Christ, that they're doing the right things. So he's not just having a a kind of PMA, a positive mental attitude that denies the facts of the matter. No, there were some he was very much um, concerned about whether or not they would be saved, like the man cast out in 1 Corinthians 5 and handed over to Satan and to the people in Galatia who were being bewitched, and he didn't know if they were uh, right with God in that sense. But he has good reason to believe this because he has seen the fruit of their faith, as we'll get into in just a few moments. And it says that he's in chains because he's defending and and confirming the gospel. So it's sometimes both, isn't it? And sometimes it's one or the other. Sometimes you feel like you're on the defense. Other times you're confirming it and you're acting within the, the realm of the gospel, the power, the signs, and the gifts. Other times you're trying to defend it. Sometimes you're doing both, confirming and defending. I don't know which one I like better. I know sometimes it feels better to be confirming than defending, but there's nothing like getting a win when you're defending the gospel and seeing people's mouths be quiet and the, and the body of Christ cheering you on and people getting saved. Amen? Verse 8, and he says, all of you sharing God's grace with me. So here we see uh, that it doesn't matter the authority that people have in our lives, that we're all sharing in God's grace together. Verse 8, God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Here we see this language of family, language of relationship that really talks uh, different than the other religions, you know. The other religions can't identify like this. Not, not Buddha, not Krishna, not Muhammad. The Christian faith is truly based in a loving relationship, not only with God, with others, right? Loving God, loving people. Let's keep going, see how far we get today. And this is my prayer, and I encourage you to learn to pray the prayers of Paul. Uh, monthly, my wife and I look through the mass reports, you know, and we get to see all the disciples and what God is doing in the life groups and all of those things. And so often I always pull out a prayer from Paul or from the Scriptures to pray over the people. And these are good to remind us of the heart of God for us because Paul is being inspired to write this prayer. So this is my prayer, Paul says, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. So get this, the first part is he's praying that love may abound with knowledge and insight. I always pray for my children that they will know and love Jesus. If you're ever there with me when it's time for my kids to go to bed at night, my saying over them while I'm blessing them and putting them to bed is, Lord, I pray that they will always know and love you. See how Paul talks about that. They are tied together. That your love abounds the more you know and have insight to him. That's why I took that rabbit trail to go down those different subjects today. Those things are important. We've had youth pastors here eventually become atheists or agnostics, and I think that was a part of their excuse to have sex with a person other than their wife. But you see, how did they fall out of love with God? Because they stopped challenging their mind to understand the things of God just as they stop challenging their heart to accept the things of God. But God said to love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. If you check out of your mind and stop thinking about the ultimate source of creation and how we you know, live and move and have our being, you're going to feel okay having sex outside of marriage because you're going to say, why? I can you know, think about that later or I don't have to honor God. But God is sitting back here going, 
well, how did you even get to have a sexual organ to, perfect, to perform that sexual act? How did you ever become a creature? How are you not floating away? You see, God is always in the background going, I'm the foundation for everything here. And so whenever we see people falling out of love with Jesus, it's not only just a heart problem, it can also be a mind problem. They're not applying their mind to the things of God. A lot of times it is a heart problem. Don't get me wrong. we got to deal with the heart so the mind can change. I do believe that. But I'm speaking to you as Christians. If you do not challenge your mind, all of you, to grow in the knowledge of God, you think you already understand this, you will fall for the stupid temptations of the devil. Grow in your knowledge of God. Grow in your knowledge of him. So his prayer is that your, your love will grow and abound more in knowledge and depths of insight. Look at it, verse 10, preacher was knowing where he was going. I didn't even have this in the back of my mind. I like to like, come fresh when I come here. I listened to the, the whole book like twice before I got here, but I lost my, my train of thought with uh, verse 10 where it was going. But notice how perfectly it fits in. I love when, when God does this. So that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Does everybody get just a little miracle that just happened for me? I'm going verse by verse, taking my time. And as you know, most of the time I have no notes, nothing up my sleeve. I eat, sleep, and drink the word of God, fill myself so I can empty myself in front of you. Do you get that? That's why I come up here and I don't ramble on. Some people, they just ramble, ramble, tell story after story. And it's, you, know, you, you come here, you hear Bible verse passage, philosophy, world history, and it's moving, it's continuing. Why? Because I study myself full to preach myself empty by God's grace. Here's the miracle, just from my point of view, to encourage you as preachers. When I had stopped at verse 9, I was so impacted by this, and I reminded you of people that we've even seen in leadership that have fallen away and how important this is. And then look at the application of why our love must abound in knowledge and insight. The application is so that you can discern what is best and may be pure and blameless. Do you understand? Isn't that amazing? That's God just helping you along because his spirit guides us when we preach. He guides me when I teach, amen? He'll help you. Sometimes I've been way off. I have to reel back in the subject to whatever I was just explaining, you know? But here, you know, line upon line, going right into the thought. That's how we live pure and blameless. Blameless. That's how we discern what is best. How? By abounding in love through our knowledge and insight. So who are going to be the most pure among us? Those who just meditate on purity all the time? No, those who are studying, learning, growing in the knowledge and insight. Who are those who are going to be the most kind and compassionate? Just those who do charity all the time? No, those who are growing in the knowledge and insight of God. You can be an angry charity worker. You can be an ignoramus charity worker working in a nonprofit. Are you listening to me? There's a lot of nonprofiteers around here going to hell because it doesn't profit them anything spiritually. We are called to do more than just good works. We are called to know and love Jesus. And that's how we stay pure and blameless because we know and love him. With, excuse me, filled with the fruit of righteousness, right living that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So the Son of God gives glory to God. Builds God's reputation. Think of glory representing reputation, power, renown. And sometimes it may make it sound like God is insecure. We have to keep giving him praise so he gets more glory. Like fill up God's glory, you'll meet her. It's getting low. He's feeling insecure. No, giving glory to God is what fills up our meter. That's how he made it. Come on, somebody. I wish I could give you an example, but only a few of you are married. Or really only one. Uh, two. Two of you are married. What will the Lord let me say in this chapel? When you are intimate, there is a pouring out and a giving, isn't there? But when you do that, there's also a filling. And some would dare to say that you're getting more in return than what you're giving. That's true intimacy. Amen? That when you're intimate, it is not self-serving. And so I'll say that, and that's the PG version. Amen? And so think about it. We're giving glory to God in a marriage relationship to him. Why? Because he just needs it? No, he doesn't need it, but because we need it. And as we're pouring ourselves out to God in intimate worship as a bride to the groom, we are receiving in us more than what we're giving. We're receiving more love, more joy, more peace than what we're giving. That little clap offering you gave Jesus is not the equivalent of what Jesus gives you every day. 
That little shout you gave him is not equivalent to what he gives you every day. Amen? It comes back to us 30, 60, and 100 fold to the glory of God the Father. So everything we're doing that's for his glory is coming right back to us for our good. So we are to live for the glory of God and find our satisfaction in him. John Piper wrote the book. Um, what book did he write, Lawrence, that talks about this? Christian Hedonism, the Christian living for the pleasures of God. Um, look up John Piper books. It's going to be his most popular book, I believe. Yes. Well, that's his ministry. Go and put it up. Uh, John Piper books. It's something just like that, though. And that's where he gets his name from, Desiring God. You can look up Christian Hedonism, H-E-D-O-S-I-S-I-M, Hedonism. H-E-D-O-N-I-S-M, I think. But uh, look up his books and name off some of them real quick. And I'll tell you where he goes into this, this subject about how we'll find our pleasures in God. So does C.S. Lewis in The Weight of Glory. John Piper Books. Does anybody Google that? Is it? It might be that one. Desiring God. I, I said at first, John Piper Books. Maybe I just got to recognize it here by the cover. I think it is Desiring God. Why does that sound weird to me now? So many books have been written on this. Don't Waste Your Life. That's the one I'm thinking of. Desiring God, I'm sure, is similar. How to Fight for Joy. But Don't Waste Your Life puts it in the perspective of not trading the temporary pleasures for the eternal weight of glory to be had in the future. And C.S. Lewis talks about that as well in his, in his little uh, booklet, The Weight of Glory. The weight of glory, don't waste your life. Desiring God, Christian hedonism is a thought to consider. I believe most of those um, things that are in that thought because we will find our greatest love when we're loving him. We will find our greatest joy when we find our joy in him. Do you guys get all of those little one-liners? What those one-liners are saying is we bear the fruit, the fruit of righteousness from Christ Jesus while we're giving glory and praise to God. So the more I give glory to God, the more fruit of this righteousness that I bear. Does everybody get that? Amen. And so self-preservation and self-pleasure is not an evil thing. And that's what specifically C.S. Lewis talks about, who influenced Piper because he came before him. C.S. Lewis talks about that in one sense, seeking pleasure and self-preservation in those things is not wrong. That is not an evil desire. So somebody you may talk to as an atheist might want to try to trip you up. Uh, you'll say, uh, you know, you're selfish, this, this, and that. And then they'll say, well, why do you want to go to heaven? And then you'll say, because I don't want to go to hell. Well, that's selfish. You know, well, why do you want to pray and read your Bible? Because it makes me feel better. Well, that's selfish. You serve God out of selfish reasons too. I serve myself out of selfish reasons. Yeah, so here's the difference. What are we serving determines whether or not we're making the right decisions and what benefits ourself. If I am serving God and it benefits me, that is not selfish in the, in the evil sense because I have yielded my pleasures to him. But I know that as I give my pleasures to him, he gives me back the fullness of joy. There putting their pleasures first to receive back more pleasure. And that, by definition, according to the Bible, is evil. And it's not evil because you don't get more pleasure out of it. Get, watch this. It's actually evil because you don't get pleasure out of it. Everybody get this. This is weight of glory, C.S. Lewis stuff. It's not that the person in the world loves pleasure more than you, and that's why they're in the world. This will blow your mind. Christians actually love pleasure more than them, and that's why we're in Christ. They're actually being deceived by a lesser pleasure. See, that got, that got Lawrence's attention. When you get Lawrence's attention, that takes a lot. So this is the example that C.S. Lewis gives. We're all infatuated with water. This is the example. We're all infatuated with it because we're meant to be around it for some reason, right? We're mostly made of water. And we love water. We consume water. There's the beauty of water. There's the sound of water. But there's some who are just content with the water in a puddle or in a Chicago pothole. And they're just content there. There are others who reach to the bottom of that and are discontent. And then they search and seek out for more. 
And as they seek, they find there's the ocean. So it's really those in the world who are not full of pleasure that can stay there because they are now satisfied with this much pleasure. We are those who hunger and thirst for more pleasure. And we found the bottom of drugs. It's not that the person doing drugs has found something I didn't find, and that's why they're still doing it. I found something in drugs they still have not found. That's the bottom. And it doesn't matter how many drugs you do or little. The moment you do it, you can find the bottom. I found it quicker than some. Same thing with sex. It's not that the person doing uh, you know, sexual perversion has more fun at it than we do. No, those of us who had sex but were still yet uh, depraved in our soul and empty, all we did was find the bottom quicker. And so that needs to be our prayer oftentimes for the world, those that we're ministering to, may they find the end of the earthly pleasures and be drawn in their heart to something greater. And, and C.S. Lewis said it like this, we were made for something more because we desire something more. Does the cat know there's more? No, the cat's satisfied with a little kit, catnip and a little bit of food and a nice little box to live in. The cat doesn't desire more. It's not like the cat's just looking at you going, what, what else is there for me to do? No, the, the squirrel is fine doing what the squirrel does today. But it's the human that's not okay with whatever they have. They always want more. They always want more. And yet, they can't find it in more of that. It's those who understand it's not more of money that makes me happy. It's not more of... Um, my job, it's not more accomplishments, it's not more degrees, it's more of Jesus that satisfies my soul. So really, in one sense, we're all the addicts here. Hello, my name is Joe, and I'm addicted to Jesus. I'm a Jesusaholic, Jesusaholic, you know? We're really the ones who have discovered the pleasures that are forevermore. And then, sadly, sometimes we get deceived when we step out of the things of God and stop bearing the righteousness of God, and we go back to those worldly pleasures. And what does the Bible say in Peter? That's like a dog returning back to its vomit. It will. It will give it some substance. But once again, it's vomit. It's not the king's table prepared before us. Amen? Oh, praise God. I'm glad that we got to have this wonderful talk today and go deep into God's Word. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for today. Thank you for this book that was written to these wonderful people that is still speaking to us today by the power of the Holy Spirit. Cleanse our hearts. Purify our minds. May we live for you, know you in all that we do. May we reflect you to this world, O oh God, and draw others to you. And wherever we go, O oh God, may we encourage others to join in this relationship as well so that they can have joy, so that they can have you inside of them completing this work, O oh God. And when we lead these people, make disciples that make disciples, may we pray for them and care for them the same way that Paul cared for these disciples and saints. And may we do it with pure motives, O oh Lord, growing in our knowledge and love of, of you the whole time because we also want to grow closer to you. So whether we're elders or deacons, whether we're serving or leading, may we do all things through you, Christ Jesus, for the glory of God the Father. For it's in his name we pray, in Jesus' name, amen.